I'm Monica Johnson with Marshall Weber, and this is Brooklyn Calling. Welcome to our show, where we talk about artists, libraries, and social justice, among other topics. Marshall and I are your hosts. Uh, we're both artists who head up Brooklyn Inc., an arts nonprofit located in Brooklyn, New York, on the unceded land of the Muncie Lenape people. And we started Brooklyn Calling to amplify voices in the artist book field and to explore art making as a tool for community engagement and for social justice. And so ideally, we're going to explore some of these stories that aren't necessarily documented within the work itself. And we're also interested in finding out new aspects of material culture and how art interacts with social justice. And we do this by talking directly with artists and practitioners in this field. And today we have an extra special guest because this person is both an artist practitioner and a librarian pr practitioner. So I would like to welcome Sada Mitchell. Welcome, Sada. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm just going to say who you are for a second, and then you can oh. tell us all about who you are. <laughs> this is what I think you are. You are. <laughs> okay, so Sada Mitchell is a, an American printmaker, an archivist, and an educator from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. She holds an associate's degree in elementary education from the University of Phoenix, a Bachelor of Arts in Communication Art with a minor in Art History from Savannah College of Art and Design, and a Master's Degree in Library and Information Science from Drexel University. <clears throat> and she's certified by the Academy of Certified Archivists. Currently, she serves as the SCAD Gen Library Arch Archives and Special Collections Librarian at the Savannah College of Art and Design. So before we get into your work, <laughs> I just want to start by talking a little bit about you, Sada, because yeah. I am literally exhausted. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> going, like inserting myself in all of those degree programs, oh, which okay. I am not implying I am in any way bored by them, yeah, but I yeah. just can't go yeah. on without recognizing these are very interesting progressions yeah. that lead us into understanding Sada Mitchell, the person we are going to talk to right now. So could you talk a little bit about yeah. what that journey was like and was it contemplated or did you take different directions for different reasons? Um, well, thank you for um, working your way through all of that. <laughs> Even when I read it, you know, that's kind of uh, my response about my own educational journey. Um, I'm like, what in the world? Okay, but really, um, I started, um, you know, wanting to learn more about cognitive development um, due to a personal um, circumstance where my son was um, evaluated and labeled as um, developmentally delayed. And mm. so through my own personal experience um, going through the educational system um, as a child, the same thing happened to me. And um, I was misplaced into classes where 
um, there really wasn't a focus on the way in which I learned. It was more test focused. And when I was retested after, um, you know, some attention being given to, um, oh, that I might be a visual learner, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. as more research developed, um, I think, you know, those ideas about there are different ways to learn. I mean, now we have Montessori and all those things. But when I was in school, I'm not going to say how long ago that was. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't a focus. And so, um, you know, when I was retested, then I was gifted and was like, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay. What's going on here? And so, you know, when my son was um, determined, you know, that he was developmentally delayed, I just jumped in and jumped to the opportunity to actually learn about cognitive development because I wanted to be able to navigate his educational journey a little bit differently than the way that mine was. No fault to my parents at all. Um, (laughs) But it was just a different time um, in those years. And so that's where it really all began. But um, when I was in uh, middle school, that's when I first um, engage with libraries. So um, that's where it actually, actually started, um, hmm. volunteering in libraries and having a love for art and libraries um, at the same time. Um, so as I decided upon, you know, a career path, I wanted to combine as many of my interests as possible. And so that's where I kind of started with elementary education and then um, kind of veered into art. And then after that, going into library science and concentrating in archives. And so, um, and now, um, as of yesterday, <laughs> I just started on my doctoral degree oh my at Drexel. So I'm back, Monica. <laughs> like, there's more. <laughs> there's more. Wow. Um, so I am, again, returning back to education, having, um, you know, creating, uh, you know, working with artist books and making books and thinking about the history of the books and thinking about books as educational tools. I'm back down, I'm back at square one again, Mm. but on a doctoral level, and I'm looking at ways to engage um, or look at the intersection between marginalized students and archives-based engagement and uh, critical analysis of primary sources, um, you know, all those things going back to education and just kind of merging art and education and archives into one profession. Okay, Marshall, I'm like, my mind is a little blown right now. (laughs) Monica needs to take a nap. Yeah, so I'm just going to like... like pass the baton to Marshall because I need no I'm really I think that is wonderful I first of all want to just like as a parent myself uh with a kid who has you know what is termed special needs it's always complicated to understand what that means I just want to acknowledge like that is just an amazing investment and your son and in parenting in general and good on you for starting with that and I love that there's still like a thread as you move through all these stages and I want to also say I don't know that I would ever think of you as being at square one although I'm sure that's sort of a a a nice (laughs) sort of reset place to be in to feel like okay I can start again um but yeah let me take a beat and process all of this and Marshall what do you think yeah it's it's interesting because um you know, sometimes a uh, person's credentials don't really reflect on their life path or their work, obviously. But with Sada, I think, you know, we can see um, if you know Sada's work at all, or, you know, 
either her academic work or her scholarly work or her artwork, you, you can kind of, it's evidenced in the work. It's very interesting. And the first thing I think is, um, you know, at Bookland, we have this saying that artist books are like children's books for adults. And the thought behind that is because they're engaging even with language at a visual level and using, you know, combining text and imagery um, as a primary tool to like engage the reader and to engage different parts of the brain in the kind of acquisition of knowledge and the function of memory. And so when I hear you talk about, you know, this whole conundrum of the special needs, you know, that whole category is weird. I, you know, and when I, I grew up in the sixties, when that category was distinctly punitive, you know, the special class was a place they put the bad kids, um, the kids who were determined not to be normal. And the binary was pretty strict and awful. And that's changed a lot, I think. Um, but it kind of makes me think like, you know, what we lose. Um, I remember when my daughter went to first grade, she came home in tears and she said, there's no pretend corner anymore. There's no, you know, costumes and like, she hated school from then on. <laughs> she was like, for her, school just seemed to be this conspiracy to crush her imagination. Um, but you really, and, and one of those shifts that happens is we take the, you know, picture books away from the children and we give them these books filled with English. And coincidentally, that is the same time when a lot of children have trouble with kind of so-called normal early childhood education, right? There's this distinct fall off for kids when they get to just the complete text-based learning, when it, it, it immediately eliminates the visual learners, right? So, Sada, I'm wondering, like, what are your goals in terms of your studies and your art? And to me, it's interesting. You know, I don't want to um, kind of make things all deliverable, but, um, oh, you know, I suspect that you are the kind of person who has goals, yeah. <laughs> In terms of like looking at these issues, both, um, you know, it just makes me think of like how your child, for instance, en engages with your um, your artist books. Mm -hmm. So I, I want you to kind of elaborate on all this. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, I'm I'm coming from a place where I'm taking my lived experience. I'm also taking um, experience as um, an educator myself and an artist. And, um, you know, my goal is to um, kind of look at organizational, educational, organizational systems and uh, try to figure out a way um, to not only, you know, reform, but to make room for creativity and innovation, which is my um, uh, concentration in my program. Um, so it's educational leadership and management, and my concentration is creativity and innovation. And so I'm thinking about, you know, how can I use the tools and the experience and um, the art making you know, that I have and kind of implant that into the way that um, educators think 
about educating students from multiple uh, backgrounds, um, you know, social standings, irregardless of where they come from. Um, but how can we use sensory experience to elevate their cognitive development? Um, and we know that there is a connection um, between the two, um, but how can we use that for students who are marginalized, um, you know, and not necessarily, you know, by their choice um, and, and provide a pathway to elevating those, that, cogn that cognitive development um, in those students uh, through creative works. So whether that be through nonprofit organizations, whether that be through higher education administration, um, I'm not quite sure which direction eventually that will land, you know, me, but I just want to have the tools and um, the credentials in case, uh, you know, I'm able to be effective in that, on that level, in that area. You know, these are goals that kind of address systemic issues in terms of education. And I don't know, using the current language, I mean, it's, I, I think there's almost um, a decolonization of actual learning style and pedagogy going on as long, as well as the other kind of, you know, goals of decolonization going on in this country. Um, but I'm really impressed with the holographic nature of your work. It's like if you look at one of your artist books, which incorporates a lot of different sensory experience, they're often sculptural, but they also have text, but they also have QR codes that link to other experiences. Um, they often challenge the book form and kind of um, disrupt the reader's ability to um easily engage with one aspect of the piece without engaging in the other, like kind of the, the form and the content are very wrapped up. Um, they're, they're very personal, but they address historical issues. So it's almost like your, your books as, you know, objects and literary vehicles sort of reflect your larger theoretical and pedagogical concerns. And you kind of, I mean, I can say as a curator that I don't see that coherence um, very often. Um, I, I mean, many people don't even work in that kind of spectrum, you know, uh, in, in terms of like being in an educational doctoral program and then also being an exhibiting artist. Not a lot of people are bridging that gap while also being a practicing librarian and archivist. So um, again, we're kind of back to that impressive renaissance person nature of your work. And I, I'm wondering if it's like, is it all intentional? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, is it, is it intuitive? Like, how mm. did you manage this coherence? And, and are you, do you, I mean, do you see it? I mean. That's a wonderful question. And I, um, I really appreciate the way that you, um, articulated that because um, it's a little bit of both. Um, in, intentional in a way that when I'm making my art, I am thinking about how uh, viewers will engage with it based on if there's text or no text. Um, but some of it is intuitive um, because when I'm in the process um, of making the work, um, 
it's also emotional because of my cultural ties to the subject matter and the themes that I'm exploring. So it's a little bit of both. It's kind of like a, a little recipe and I just don't know how it's going to turn out. Um, but, you know, there's always um, the idea in the back of my mind, you know, if I don't use text, then what am I asking the viewer? What, how am I challenging the viewers in their thinking when they're engaging with this work? Or if I do use text, how can I use text in a creative way, whether I'm using a poem or, um, you know, for, or if they're linking to an archival, uh, digitized archival document, what do I want the viewer to explore or uh, reflect on when they're engaging with the text, not necessarily mine, but of a primary source? So it's a little bit of both. Oh my God, this is so good. <laughs> I just, I love that. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm not sorry. This is wonderful. I'm really enjoying the way that you are effectively talking as an artist about the work, work that you're creating and that you're thinking about the audience and at the same time understanding that the framework that your work exists within is as a primary resource. That's a beautiful thing. And I, I don't know that that's true of many artists out there that I've heard of, it's sort of like the work gets created and sort, and then the, the paradigm shift happens to then look at it as a primary research. And I think in your answer, what you're describing is that you're not an artist over here and a, and a librarian over here. You know, the reality, you know, I think is always true is that we are the people that we are and we live at the intersections of all of our um, investments and activities. Can you talk a little bit about who that audience is in your mind then when you're thinking? Like what is, is the audience something that would suggest people who access libraries? So in some ways a general public or is it a little more tiered or nuanced in mm -hmm. your mind? Um, I, I will say, you know, having or recognizing that I'm in that place of, um, you know, working across these different disciplines and, um, you know, that's only been recent. I had to give myself permission to be in that place because I'm such a person that, um, you know, I, I like to comp compartmentalize things <laughs> and my life is one of those things. And so for a long time, especially, you know, being um, an archivist and our profession not really, um, only in, in recent, you know, years have archivists even seen themselves as uh, having a responsibility to social justice and to change and to be um, activists. So it, it's only been recently that I've given myself permission to kind of cross that line and kind of transition from, you know, the gatekeeper role um, into an archivist that you know, I, I can boldly um, create this work and not feel as if I am, you know, in interjecting my own personal feelings and feel like there's a repercussion because I'm not supposed to. Um, so I think, you know, um, with that being said, when I'm creating the work, I am thinking of my audience as students um, because I've been, you know, I, I, I'm an educator, so I'm thinking about experiences that I've seen them have with primary sources. And I'm kind of gathering that and thinking about, wow, you know, if I use uh, this story or 
place this material um, with this other material type? What reaction will the student have based on the sensory experience of this material type? And so I'm thinking about student, I'm thinking about the public, I'm thinking about um, the African-American collective memory, and I'm thinking about um, you know, our uh, experience with archives traditionally as places, um, you know, where uh, our representation isn't always visible. And I'm thinking of my books as a way or as a portal, if you will, um, through the QR code to um, introduce to some and then make more comfortable to others that space and the possibility of research and being comfortable enough to navigate and be in those spaces to perform that research for self-discovery. So there's a lot of different audiences that I'm thinking about. Wow, that's great. <laughs> it makes me think um, about some of your audiences that mm -hmm. I have seen have reactions mm -hmm. to your work. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there's been a... a I mean, I think um, since you you come to the field of artist books with a mature body of work and a very strong theoretical and scholarly background, and it's apparent, you know, how quickly um, it, it's it's a that is apparent by the fact that how quickly your work was accepted into the field and how interested people are in your work and how well received it was. Um, but we've also had some interesting interventions and reactions to the work that have to do with all these issues that you're talking about, yeah. um, both the content and the form mm -hmm. and the, those relations. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I but, hope but, you're going where I think you're going. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love this so much. So okay. one of the, you know, one of your pieces is, is called Never Forget. <laughs> yes. And... <laughs> I want you to just, um, rather than me describe the piece, I, I'd, I'd like to hear your description of the piece from your perspective, and we can kind of maybe dive in a little bit on yeah. the issues that this particular piece has raised, because it really illustrates everything that you're talking about. Sure. Um, and I must say, never forget is, I guess, the what you would probably, what I would consider my first artist's book that I ever made. Um, and, you know, it came from such a place of emotion because I created this artist book during the pandemic. And I was experiencing all of these emotions of helplessness. Um, I was watching the murder of George Floyd, Floyd being replayed over and over in the media. And so the book itself served to document history. It's a memorial to the people who were murdered, but it's also a memorial to um, significant people that transitioned too soon. And so in the absence of words, that was intentional. Um, the monochromatic, you know, color scheme, that was also, uh, you know, a choice. And then to make creates a book in a way that um, it's sculptural and it doesn't close um, it, it doesn't it doesn't close in a way that uh, in a traditional book uh, format um, because it's a wall it's a wall of protection and I don't know if that was always 
or if had if I had enough opportunity to communicate that. And so it, I'm a mother, I have a son, and you know, when I created this book, it was my response to my environment and and to the civil unrest. And so the protection that I felt as a mother that I did not have um when my son leaves my home and out of my presence, I kind of turned my attention to this artist book and I created that fortress, that wall of protection for the people that I couldn't help because I felt helpless. And so um, within museum walls, there has been dialogue and reflection and acceptance and pride and reclamation and all of these feelings that, you know, have been expressed to me whenever I tip into the museum and talk to people um, about the piece. And my intent was that viewers contend with the question of what it means to be a person of color in America, regardless of space and time, because you not only have George Floyd um, being um, uh, printed, you know, on, on one side, but you also have Emmett Till. And so it's, it's a contemplation, you know, without text, just so viewers can see the imagery. And then I'm hoping in their mind, um, they'll understand the history of violence against black bodies in this country. Now, before we get to the issue that I know Marshall will get to. There's a few of them. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to add a few more details to it because, like you said, there's Emmett Till, there's George Floyd, there's Ahmaud Arbery, there's Breonna Taylor. But then there's also John Lewis, uh, who passed in 2020, Chadwick Boseman, who passed in the same year, Toni Morrison in 2019. And and you already met, you said that, like people who who left us too soon. Um, could you talk a bit about the the relationship between the the uh, people of color, the black people in here that have been murdered by the police uh, as a result of state violence over the years, and then people like John Lewis, who was not Chadwick Boseman, who passed of cancer, and Toni Morrison, um, who I'm not sure what the cause, but um, who have largely been like cultural icons who have contributed exactly. to the canon. Yeah, that was intentional. <laughs> um, <laughs> the reason why I placed, um, um, you know, those individuals, the icons in the same space, physically in the book, they're in the same space, they're inseparable. Um, the reason why I did that was because with the murders of Black men and, you know, historically the lynchings of Black people in this country, um, immediately they're demonized after they're murdered or, you know, there's something brought up about their background, um, you know, that's completely irrelevant to why, um, you know, they suffered this violence. And so I intentionally... Um, incorporated um, black icons in the same space to say that, um, you know, although the attention is automatically turned to what, you know, society feels like they may have done wrong in their past, as if that's a justification for, for death, um, there are, um, you know, historical figures throughout history um, that as African-Americans, um, you know, we, we, we feel proud of their accomplishments and we never want to forget them too. So by placing them in the same, uh, in the same book 
or on the same side in this fortress. It's a, it's a place of mourning and reflection, but it's also to say that they're people too, just like the icons that we mm-hmm. admire and revere. And they didn't and- have a chance to reach those potentials. Yeah, exactly. Who knows yeah. what they could have been. And you know what? It also, uh, maybe this is what you were saying already, but that it adds to the layer of protection. Mm-hmm. If you protect Brianna Taylor with Chadwick Boseman, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. and put them together, there's some kind of cultural armor mm-hmm. that Brianna Taylor gets to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's to remove them from that negative light, from the, from the, you know, things that were said about them in the media and to place them in a different uh, light in, in the perspective of the viewer. Well, yeah, I think that's interesting because um, even today, I think for um, Black activists, artists, actors, it, it, it's such a slow and much more difficult process to build the positive brand, right? And so it's kind of referring to that, you know, all these people have struggled and, and ended up at different places, not always due to their own qualities. I think that the piece makes that apparent. Um, there's also something in the, you know, in regard to the audiences, like a lot of people who have acquired the not, uh, never forget books from Brooklyn um, have been university libraries, and so uh, th- which is interesting because um, they have to deal with the fact that this is not a book that is just going to be put away and shelved. So, it, it from the very beginning it fascinated me that this book was like an intervention into the very notion that you could just put this book on the shelf and forget about it, like you literally can't. And yet there literally are pages. Like the book is more of a wave structure. Like the, the pages are curved into one another and the book is kind of open, like you said, like a wall. Um, however, you know, it is not an accordion fold. It cannot be folded shut, cannot be closed. It is a book that cannot be closed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of for me, um, you know, I have this kind of horrible selfish moment when I see something <laughs> I, I really like um, that I think is an effective piece of artwork. And I go, gosh, why didn't I think of that? You know, it's just <laughs> like, what? and, and there's also a moment of, um, you know, both being envious and jealous of the, you know, kind of a professional <laughs> artist thing. But then there's also a moment of just like, it is amazing that mm-hmm. again and again, I am confronted with artwork in the book form that challenges anything I've seen before, formally, materially, structurally, content-wise. Like, uh, you you keep on thinking, um, there's something about the book that has an imprimatur of, um, you know, authority, whereas with a painting you go, oh, that's a crazy painting, and like, oh, they're doing something new in painting, and like, oh, the canvas isn't square, that's really cool. And, but with the book, it, it seems like there's a lot of limitations to, to the codex, to the scroll. But again and again, I've seen artists do really um, amazing things to challenge those limitations and to still use that kind of icon of the vehicle of knowledge and spiritual inquiry that books have pretty much across the globe. Um, and your book did 
that to me. It provoked that reaction of like, wow, this is something new. This is a real conscious intervention that people are going to react to. Um, and it's also just, you know, brilliant. It's just a, it's a simple, great, direct idea that brings forth all these other sculptural kind of associations. Um, like even Maya Lin's Vietnam Okay, uh, we, okay. before we get into that, <laughs> I'm so famous for cutting Marshall off to be like, yeah, yeah, Someone yeah. needs to do it. Someone does. And, and I mean it with the most love and respect that I have for you, Marshall. But I, but we've put down the breadcrumbs. Now let's get to the thing. You know, there's like, there was a reason you brought this up, Marshall, right? That there was like, yes. um, okay. There, there was some reactions to your, to, to this particular piece. Like some people did not understand that the book actually couldn't be closed. Like, and it was almost as if they had this wish, even seeing the pictures, reading the description, they had this kind of wishful thinking that, but yeah, but when I get it and we need to put it away, we can just like close it and put it on the shelf. Right. And then there was another reaction about the craft, the level of what I like to say, the level of craft excellence, mm. which people often <laughs> quote to me. Um, and I have to let there is a backstory to this. Like, this is not a super expensive fine press book. This is a, a $500 sculptural artist book that is uh, from from my perspective as both a distributor and a curator. And I think I can say from Sada's perspective as an artist, this is a pretty affordable piece of artwork for institutional settings. And we got some crazy reactions. I don't know if you want to comment, Monica. On well, I don't know them as intimately, but I mean, I could paraphrase. What I heard indirectly was just that it didn't meet their the expectations that the photographs Im implied. And it really was about the book being able to close that was the most upsetting. And and that actually, Sada, that was the first time in the um the history of coming to know your work that I really was like, oh wow, this is amazing. And um and I just thought that's the best thing about the work. That's actually the best. I mean, you know, all the content brings you to that point to go, that's the best thing about the work because it wouldn't be the best thing about just any work that wouldn't close, but it's this subject matter that makes it so brilliant. Um, but that's all I know, Marshall. Yeah. And well, first of all, you have to, I want to backtrack and say, you know, Sada's work has impe impeccable crafts craftspersonship to it like <laughs> otherwise it it couldn't travel yeah her work would not be as well received um and probably wouldn't be represented by bookland just to give another inside scope there so i was really interested in how kind of attitude and inherent bias when challenged by kind of a disruption of form combines to kind of it confuses some people like they are challenged to find a way to fit this piece into their perspective on what the piece should be. And it seems as if it's driven by the material form, but I think it's driven by the content. Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how you mm-hmm. feel about that, Sada. Well, there are a few things, um, you know, that I, I, I could definitely um, talk about. Um, and and I, I have to start by saying, you know, I have to give you credit, you know, Marshall, because when I was making uh, this book, I didn't I didn't start off with an intention for it to be confusing. <laughs> like that wasn't the goal. But when I spoke to you, you know, after you had certain conversations with different universities and I was getting the impression that the format, you know, um, was being misunderstood or or or, you know, not being completely receptive of of the materials and the way that they are interacting with each other, it's paper, you know, and I, I think initially, um, you know, I, I had to go back to, um, you know, just, just my experience as an artist and being critiqued. And I had to really come to grips with the fact that, okay, everyone might not like everything that you make and you have to be okay with that. And you have to be ready to, um, you know, sometimes even explain, um, you know, why is it challenging to viewers or why is it challenging in terms of understanding how to store and box and um, explaining why the craftsmanship is the way that it is. And so in doing so, um, it really brought me back to a place where, um, you know, historically, African art has always been in terms of comparison to Western art. Oh, it's primitive because it's a mask and there's matted fibers and the paint is, you know, all these things came to my mind and I had to recognize, don't be offended by, you know, the feedback that you are receiving, because after all, um, everyone isn't aware that African art and African masks were your inspiration for this piece. And I looked at masks and I looked at um, the matted fibers and uh, the use of, of, of wood and, you know, the wood isn't painted perfectly and all of these, what we would, in the Western world, what we would consider imperfections, you know, to another culture, there is no expectation to be perfect. It serves as, uh, uh, you know, um, ceremonial. So even the use is different in the same way that this book serves as a memorial. Um, so I, I had to kind of bring myself to that and, you know, just not be offended as an artist because I'm receiving this um, feedback. But that's to say that, um, you know, it, it, it also kind of brought me back to, and, and Marshall kind of sparked this thought process in my mind when, you know, he uh, kind of shared that, well, the book isn't meant to be closed and, you know, you won't forget it because you can't close it. And then, it, <laughs> and then I thought about it and I was like, yes, like, yes. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I didn't even really think of that when I was making it, but, <laughs> you know, to Marshall's credit, I'm like, yes, because that's so true. Um, and then I thought about, you know, how just, just, just how black bodies are viewed 
um, we haven't had control over our bodies because of slavery. And as women, our bodies were used for medical studies and men, our husbands and, and, and sons were lynched. And so, you know, this is a way, in a way, the interaction, the engagement um, that the viewer has or the student or the faculty or whomever, you know, interacts with this book, it's forcing you to um, have an acknowledgement of this, this piece. And you have to, in a way, acknowledge these people and that you cannot manipulate, uh, you cannot close, you cannot have control over their bodies. And that's the way that they die, with someone having control over their bodies, which historically has been the experience of African-American people in this country. And so I, you know, it, it happened in a, in a beautiful way. Um, you know, although I designed it and made it to be a memorial and to not, you know, fully close, but that kind of came about um, as I received the feedback and I thought about, um, you know, just the consistent, you know, uh, uh, perspective that a lot of people have about even what a book should be. You know, mm -hmm. this was my mm -hmm. first artist book and I'm thinking, wow, I thought I had more liberty because <laughs> 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 after all, you know, a book is, is in the form, mm -hmm. artist book is in the form of a book or um, inspired by the book. And I'm telling this to students every day. And then I make mm -hmm. my first artist book and it's like, oh, this isn't like a book. And it's like, duh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so all these things are going through my mind. And I really had to just, you know, um, just really uh, think about it deeply and not allow it to um, affect my art making moving forward. Mm. Yeah. I have one note, and, and it's not to um, backtrack on mm -hmm. any gratitude to Marshall, because I think, <clears throat> Marshall, you are very gifted at. <laughs> noticing things you are a very talented and um experienced curator and you understand visual language very well so for you to articulate that observation may have been the first time it was said literally to you Sada but I think that sometimes work the work itself has a way of becoming complete without the creator knowing literally what aspects are making it complete. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't offshore the credit a hundred percent to Marshall. And, and again, that's not to take away. I think there's a, <laughs> there, there's a working relationship that I think we, we, we can have with each other. That's obviously at play here where we're helping each other to understand ourselves better. And, Art is a great vehicle for those conversations. Yeah, and I think m my obvious observation was about something that existed in the piece. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I wouldn't have seen it. And there's a very blurry zone between intentionality and intuition, especially mm -hmm. in art making, because we don't, you know, we don't completely, I mean, some artists do their works really boring if you're going to completely intellectually preconceive your <laughs> artwork. I mean, good luck and... But I think it is, to me, it's more interesting that there are, um, that an artwork can surpass the intentions of the creator be because it's done from an act of passion, you know, and there's, there's emotional investment in the creation of the piece that um, 
provides far more experience for the reader or the audience than maybe is immediately intellectually articulated to the artist. Um, I also thought the other interesting thing about this piece is the title. You know, never forget is a phrase that has been somewhat appropriated by, you know, Zionist exceptionalists as like the word to refer to the German Holocaust of the Jews, you know, and like that's the one thing we should never forget. Well, we're supposed to forget like the imperialist crusade against indigenous peoples around the world. Uh, we're supposed to forget the Israeli war against the Palestinians. We're only supposed to remember this one thing, you know, or Armenia or Ukraine or, oh, you know, fill in the blanks. I, and I think that that was, a, in, you know, that's a stance in a way for a global audience. But I believe, Sato, when we talked about it, you said, oh, I wasn't really thinking about that either. Um, because you were thinking about a particular audience and there's always multiple audiences that we're not always going to conceive. The artwork is going to go to many places we don't know about. And it's going to have those impacts on audiences that we're not necessarily aware of. Um, and I think um, that is very interesting that, that, you know, it shows the strength of a piece. So this makes me um, wonder um, where, as, as you get more involved in kind of addressing pedagogy at a systemic institutional level in your doctoral studies, where do you see your material arts practice going? Um. I am, I think it's going to uh, kind of help me to, uh, moving forward, think about the places and the spaces where, um, you know, uh, different types of people, um, different types of students on different educational um, levels will engage with my work. Not that I didn't consider that beforehand, but when I created my artist books, it was for an exhibition. <laughs> like, I honestly did not know that this would be the outcome. And I, t I say that to people all the time because, you know, I, I, I would love to take the credit and say, you know, I did this exhibition and I knew that, you know, but that was not case. This was totally unexpected. And now that the institutions that have been interested in my work, and now that I know, um, you know, um, they will be used as teaching tools, I'm more cognizant. And I'm going to use that um, in a way uh, so that I am, you know, this is my platform to tell the stories and to um, provide access to all of the documents and the archival material that I know is out there and um, in a way kind of hidden. Um, not necessarily because, you know, the, the institutions are hiding them away, but, you know, there may be groups of, of people that aren't comfortable in, in being in those spaces. And so I want to introduce the archives and I want to share stories and I'm thinking about, you know, my artist books as educational tools and uh, by studying institutional systems and leadership and management and thinking about, um, you know, ultimately how I can bring about that change in access um, to creative works, um, thinking about pedagogy. Um, that's kind of, you know, where, where I'm, I'm going with it. That's what I'm thinking about now.
I think that will be the difference um, moving forward. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's um, you're so modest. I I, I mean, I, when I look back now at, at our timeline, I think that you know the whole first year of mm-hmm. our relationship, our professional yeah. relationship. I first met you at SCAD in Savannah. I don't think you said anything about being an artist at all until a year later, in the second time we met. Was... I know. Yeah, when I, I first know. heard about you, Sada, I was like, yeah. Oh, the librarian does books. <laughs> and it, it, it had already sort of cemented in my mind, which is also a little bit of like, what was I, th- why do I think so narrow mindedly about people in general that I'm like surprised? Right. But, yeah. but yes, to your modesty, I think these things you don't necessarily need to be telling people all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, when I, when I first, um, you know, uh, accepted the role and you know I teaching with artist books was a part um, of my you know responsibilities and duties I had it was a learning curve for me (laughs) because I was like what is an artist book you know I I'd seen like I'm used to the traditional archival material and so although I was an artist again it was me you know, merging all of these little compartmentalized, you know, things in my background. And so I felt like, uh, you know, having worked with students and, um, you know, seeing other book artists work, I was inspired. So I think I probably didn't say anything because I was still in awe of, of the possibilities and I wasn't quite sure how I was going to, um, you know, investigate my own work and create my own work in a way that um, was true to what I wanted to say. Um, So I don't know if I could devote all that to modesty, (laughs) but it was, you know, (laughs) I I was just in awe of the materials and I wanted to learn um, everything that I could before I, you know, embarked on my own journey and, um, you know, carved out you know, the way in which I wanted to work with materials and how I wanted to format my own work. So I was still exploring, I think. I was still kind of like exploring. We are going to have to have two parts to this podcast. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we're, we're nearing we're, we're the like end. I can feel here. it. But <laughs> Sada, will you come back? Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. I feel Absolutely. like this could be like... I want to check in with you, you know, when you have time during your PhD program to see, you know, what's coming up for you that's rolling into your practice as an artist and a librarian and as an educator. Um, I, a couple things I just wanted to note um, Mm -hmm. is how much I appreciate the different binding techniques that you bring to your books Oh, yeah. I noticed that there was a concertina <laughs> binding, there was an according binding, and I think I'm going to say it correctly, the North African binding technique. Is it tacketed? Yes, that's, that's perfect. Yes. I mean, it's really incredible to then think, okay, you're an, you're, you're an artist of artist books, and mm-hmm. you didn't just learn a binding technique and then mm-hmm. ran with it. Mm-hmm you really invested a lot of uh, time and skill into learning 
binding techniques that suited the projects that you endeavored to make. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to express my acknowledgement that I see that and it's incredible. Oh, thank you. Thank you for doing that. I think that goes back to me being a researcher in the ah. minoring in art history during, um, you know, yes. my um, art education, um, you know, just trying to be as representative as as much as possible and paying homage to those geographical areas if we, in which I'm talking about in terms of the content and the experience of the people who pass through those areas and not just picking a binding, but saying, hey, there's mm -hmm. like some research and there are actual uh, manuscripts, you know, in those areas that have this binding. And that's just another, you know, um, oh another layer uh, for students to explore when they're looking at mm -hmm. the work and another, uh, you know, opportunity for discovery for students and engagers of this work. Yeah, I think that's really exemplified by the your Timbuktu book. Because yeah. we could, I mean, we could pretty much do an entire podcast on every <laughs> one of your books because <laughs> they all are so referential to these mm -hmm. very rich histories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things that really appealed to me about your work is, is there's a definitive sense of who you are as an artist in mm -hmm. terms of your accomplishments across many disciplines, but also in just the generosity of your work to engage with really large chunks of history. Mm, um, mm -hmm. Often, you know, uh, related to the black experience, both mm -hmm. African and African-American, but, mm -hmm. but not always. And, and right. certainly, um, you know, in the sense that every archivist is sort of a globalist, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it really, that scope, I think, is something that I see in people who work in the archival field. Like mm -hmm. the, it's it's almost like uh, to me. I think it's I don't know. I'm it impresses me so much um, because I, I I before I met archivists, I thought I was a person who could handle a lot of data, and then you meet <laughs> these people who are like, well, yeah. <laughs> after I read that ten thousandth yeah. book. Uh, you know, uh, about the early Greek empire, I realized, you know, and, and you just realize that there are people who have uh, varying abilities to absorb information and mm -hmm. the people who are the most talented at absorbing information are usually librarians or archivists. Mm -hmm. And so it's you know, always interesting to see that reflected in the work. Yeah, I, I really, I really have to thank you know, um, booklet for agreeing to represent me and, um, you know, go to bat for me when I have, you know, questionable feedback, you know, and be willing to say, um, you know, this is the reason why, or, you know, get to know the artist or, you know, um, learn a little bit more about her background and not just say, oh, well, that's just it. That's how, you know, you feel and that's okay. Um, <laughs> You know, so I and then, you know, I, I, I don't think there could be uh, a more perfect match, you know, considering um, Bookland's mission and the other artists that you represent and the themes that they're exploring. And um, I'm just really excited to be a part of everything that Bookland is doing. So thank you all for representing me. 
You are totally well, welcome. We are here for you, Sada. Oh, hundred <laughs> percent. And and I want to say too, this is I think this is all part of why we we're, we do the work that we do because mm-hmm. the education is not doesn't yeah. just exist within the realm of you know once it's in the library, it's mm-hmm. in everything. It's from the artist to us to the librarian and back and forth, and yeah. literally every bit of discourse is curriculum of some to some extent and Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. we're educating each other with every one of these negotiations Mm -hmm. of content Mm -hmm. and I think this is part of why I love it and why I don't think of it as like negative or I don't put it in a bucket like that was negative feedback although it felt that way it's like this is an opportunity to build absolutely so thank you also for the opportunity to 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 be able to engage in that discourse absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. So I also want to say uh, to anyone listening, uh, thank you to you for listening. And um, check out the show notes. We'll have ways for you to connect with Sada Mitchell and her work. And if you're a librarian or a curator uh, and you're working at an educational institute and you like what we're talking about, you're interested in collecting Sada's work or others like it, email us at hello at bookland.org. It's like Brooklyn, but no R. And you can also check out our full catalog on Brooklyn's website, brooklyn.org. Bye, Sada. Bye. Bye, Sada. We'll talk soon. Thank you. This podcast was made possible in part by funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and in partnership with the City Council and from individual donors to Brooklyn Inc. You can support this podcast by making a donation at brooklyn.org slash donate.